Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9 is our passage for today. And with God's help, if you would give your attention to the reading of his word. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now let's go to him together. Gracious God, eternal Father, Lord, we bow our hearts before you this day, asking for your help as we prepare to open up your word. Lord, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us. We pray that he would illuminate the word to our hearts. We pray that you would unfold your word to us and give light to us, give us understanding Lord, we are simple people. We need your help so desperately today. Lord, we pray that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Most pastors I have talked to, myself included, would rather preach at a funeral than a wedding, any day of the week. At a wedding, uh, you find this out in a hurry when you're starting off in ministry. No one listens to you. Uh, Everyone is there staring dewy-eyed at the bride and the groom or giggling at the flower girl or whatever else it, it might be. But at a funeral, some may try to shut it out of their minds. Some may try to stuff it away in one way or another, but death is on everyone's mind. It's at the forefront of their mind. A a soul has passed from this life to the next. Everyone is thinking about what that all means, and there is an opportunity for uh, the preacher to sanctify that loss of life to the good of the souls of men. And that is what is happening in the text that we're looking at today, only you have the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the preacher. 
He's the one doing the, teacher, the teaching. In the case at hand, uh, the sermon has been prompted by this report from some people in the crowd that come to tell Jesus about this episode where Pilate has slaughtered Galilean worshipers. And that's about all we know about it. We know nothing else about this episode. It's all recorded in this one verse, but you get the gist here. Pontius Pilate, who is the governor of Judea, he's in the upper ranks of the Roman Empire. He acknowledges no other sovereign except for Caesar. He rejects the lordship of Yahweh. Uh, he loathes anyone that would bow the knee at, anyone, at, 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 the, at the feet of anyone other than himself. He determines he's going to make a mockery out of these Jewish worshipers and uh, make an example of them to anyone that might be inclined to follow in their footsteps. We can deduce just from this one verse that this is probably happening during the Feast of Passover. The reason for that is that ordinarily, uh, no one was allowed to participate in the sacrifice to this degree unless you were a priest, except during the Feast of Passover. Whatever the case, these are faithful Jewish believers who had refused to bow the knee to the Roman establishment, and so Pilate murdered them. And he did so in the middle of worship. Just as they are offering their gifts to God, Pilate has them slain, and he takes their blood, and he mixes it with the blood of the sacrifice. It was the height of desecration. It was the most vile, uh, profane, sacrilegious, egregious thing you could think of to defile the worship of God. And those who were aware of this, those who were aware of what had gone on in this event could only tack it up to one thing. And Jesus draws this out. If you look at verse 2, it says, And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. It was because they were such heinous sinners, wasn't it, Jesus? Surely this is why they died the kind of death that they did. Have you ever asked one of those terribly awkward questions that you immediately regretted as soon as it came out of your mouth. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, he's the one doing the speaking, of course, but he's giving voice to the thoughts of their hearts. This is their line of thought that he is giving voice to. Now, you might have thought that the burning question in their mind, having observed something like this, would be the issue of theodicy, the so-called problem of evil that we hear atheists talk about. If God is good, why do bad things happen? Or if God is an all-knowing, all-powerful being, how can he allow this sort of suffering to go on? But that's not it at all. Their rationale isn't nearly so uh, philosophical as that. And we know that from the question that Jesus places in their mouths. 
they assumed that these Galileans must have been exceptionally detestable sinners. That the reason they suffered the way that they did was because they were worse sinners than the rest of their Galilean countrymen. And so the people in this crowd are operating under this governing principle that says, if you are a good person, good things happen to you. And if you're a bad person, bad things happen to you. That's their presumption. Have you ever found yourself thinking that way? Now be honest with yourself. Have you ever found yourself adopting this kind of moralistic mentality, this moralistic understanding of God's dealings with your life? Things are going well. I must be performing really well. Or maybe it goes in the other direction. Things aren't going so well in my life. It must be because I'm such a lousy Christian. I haven't been reading my Bible the way I should. God isn't happy with me. You see another example of this in John chapter 9. The disciples see a man who had been born blind. His whole life he had been born blind. He he was blind. He had never seen a flower. He had never seen uh, the, the sunlight glinting off of a of a stream. He had never seen a bluebird fly. And the disciples asked what seemed like the the only logical question to ask. They said, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he should be born blind? It was one or the other. It, it, It was just a matter of finding out which one. Well, in both cases, in John chapter 9 and in the text that we're looking at today, thinking about that Galilean massacre, you, you see what is lurking behind those kinds of questions. Not only is there this mentality of moralism and operation, but there's also a presumption of self-righteousness going on in the heart of those who are thinking about what they see around them. The presumption is this, I'm not worthy of this kind of suffering. There's a reason I haven't undergone these kinds of horrors. The absence of these kinds of afflictions in my life surely must signal God's approval of the way that I live. I don't suffer because I'm such a good person person. Now church, what I'm, I'm hoping that you're beginning to see is that this is nothing less than a false gospel. This is a gospel of moralism that cannot save. If you begin to believe that you can know God's favor in some way apart from salvation by grace, by grace alone, you are, you are resting on something that cannot support you. You have a foundation of sinking sand. As soon as your own merit enters into the equation and you begin to think to yourself, I'm a good person, or you know what? My good works outweigh my bad works. You're on that shifting sand of self-righteousness. And it can show itself in such subtle ways. How do we see it here? 
Spiritual pride has gotten its roots so deep within the heart that these individuals look at other people's afflictions and they become convinced that in some way you can draw a straight line between their suffering and their sinfulness. Well, Jesus is going to quickly rid us of that kind of idea, that severe suffering on the one hand or easy providences, take your pick, signal the degree of one's sinfulness. How does Jesus respond? Well, you might expect him to look at this scene and rend his garments. God's people, Yahweh's worshipers, have just been violently slaughtered in the middle of worship. I have to be careful here, but you can, you can use your imagination and you can think of uh, events in our nation's not so distant past that parallel what we see here in this passage. You might think that if anything would cause the Lord Jesus Christ to call down fire from heaven, surely this would. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even stop to take time to decry Pilate's wickedness. He doesn't try to get the Jewish populace all stirred up so that they can oust their Roman overlords instead. What does he do? He turns to his audience and he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now friends, I, I, I want you to just hang for a minute on that word, no, just on its own for a moment. I don't know what kind of suffering you or those who are around you are enduring today, but hear this. Jesus says that you cannot look at the intensity of someone's suffering and use that as a guide to determine how sinful they are. You cannot do that. No, I tell you, the Lord Jesus says. Afflictions, disease, pain, trouble, adversity, thorns in the flesh, these are no reliable index of one's righteousness or unrighteousness, or God's pleasure, or displeasure, even tortuous deaths. I would have this impressed especially on two groups of people today. First, those who are tempted to judge unrighteously those around them on the basis of their temporal conditions. And brothers and sisters, we must be honest with ourselves. We are all prone to do this. We find ourselves tempted to look with our natural eyes and draw conclusions. Draw conclusions about someone's relationship with God just based on the, the, the temporal lot, based on their circumstances they find themselves enduring. Secondly, those of you who are called to walk through affliction and bear heavy crosses, you might be tempted today to do the same thing as it pertains to your own account before the Lord. You might be tempted to find yourself falling prey to that false gospel of moralism, constantly looking at your own circumstances, trying to scan God's providences and assuming on the basis of what you can see with your own natural eyes that you must be a worse sinner 
than those who are around you. What would the Lord Jesus have us to draw from these kinds of episodes? And this applies to all of us. Again, he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says that apart from repentance, this is the destiny of all mankind. We will all likewise perish. And when Jesus uses that word perish, he is using it in that final, ultimate, eschatological sense that we see in the scriptures, that same sense in which we saw back in chapter 12, the chapter that precedes this, chapter 12 and verse four, where Jesus says, I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear, fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So Christ takes this terrible, we must admit, terrible incident involving these Galilean worshipers and he says to everyone that would hear, what you need to reckon with Here is not what Pilate has done with these innocents, but what God will do with all sinners. Present company, not accepted. He uses this episode to paint a powerful humanity-wide need, a need that we are all facing. He is saying, in effect, we are all marked men. Why is that the case? Why is that the case? Well, it's because we're all facing the same problem that these Galileans were facing. The problem, because of which their hearts were persuaded to come in faith and present that sacrificial offering of the Lamb to the Lord. It's the problem of sin. We all need a Savior. We need a Savior from sin. This is why The Lord came into the world. Remember what the Bible says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the the chief problem that we are facing is not external oppression. It's not political opposition. The nature of our predicament is not just that there are enemies out there who are arrayed against us. Now, the messianic hope promised to address that, to be sure. God promised that in the coming of Christ, Israel would be saved from the hand of all who hate them. But that is not the whole story, nor is it the primary emphasis of Christ's coming. There was also the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. There we find the emphasis. So there is an internal problem at work within the heart of man, one that we carry with us wherever we go. Whatever political borders you find yourself living within, however friendly the government that you live under is toward the worship of the one true God. That is what Jesus chiefly aims to address and impress upon our hearts As we think about speculating why these men had met such an end, he says, you too are headed inexorably 
toward an eternal death. We're exhorted to look at what befell these men and take stock of our lives. Let your heart fear, not Pilate, but the Lord, whose insight into our lives is exhaustive. He, he knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. His ways are just and pure. His judgment is infinitely, perfectly righteous in all his ways. Praise God then for that little word, unless, unless. Jesus says, you're headed in one direction, the same direction as those who met this dreadful fate and that you too are going to die. Your destiny is no different than theirs. The wages of sin is death, but there's hope. If you will repent, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever confesses and forsakes their sin will obtain mercy. Proverbs 28 and verse 13. Brethren, we're going to consider what that means to repent in just a moment. But first I want to look, if you will, at verse 4. Now, the Lord Jesus himself marshals another example for his listeners. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Now, Jesus himself is the one to say, well, what about this? Now, he's the one bringing the case forward and saying, well, have you considered how you're going to grapple with this particular episode? He brings forward another one of the worst horrors of the, of the day. Uh, the obvious parallel would be for us to talk about 9-11 in the wake of its aftermath. A catastrophe has just occurred. Souls have been lost suddenly without any kind of warning. Now, what conclusions should we draw? What kind of lessons should be learned in the aftermath of something like that? Notice here that there's a, a, a slight shift in language in verse 4 from what we see in verse 2. In verse 2, Jesus asks, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners? In verse 4, he says, do you think they were worse offenders? And there's two different words there. That's significant. In the first, you have the idea of a transgression, some act that is committed against the will of God. In the second, the word carries the idea of being a debtor, someone who has failed to do what they are under obligation to do. You owe God obedience. And so by using both of these words together, Jesus is bringing forward to our, to our spiritual vision the full scope of our disobedience, the full scope of man's sinfulness before the Father. The wicked things that we have done are, are sin, but also our failure to keep his word. He covers both sins of commission and omission, and again, he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
I, I wonder whether you have ever watched clips of 9-11 and found yourself thinking, I am so glad that I don't live in New York City. Or I'm so thankful that I don't, didn't work in the Twin Towers. Jesus counters that way of thinking. You might think that it is insensitive on Christ's part to call people in this kind of situation to repentance. For example, to say in the wake of the Twin Towers collapsing when people who have never darkened the doors of the church suddenly start pouring in looking for answers and help. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Isn't what we need in moments like that a word of comfort? Or is it the kind and the merciful thing to do to shout aloud when the building is on fire? Is it kind to sit idly by when you know that your neighbor is headed for certain destruction? That they're headed for eternal death? No, the loving thing is to warn them. The loving thing is to cry out to them. Now there is no denying, beloved, that this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? But it comes from the mouth of one who loves us with a love that passes knowledge. It comes from the mouth of one who suffered and bled and died for our trespasses and sins. How gracious is the Lord to offer these kinds of warnings to our souls to say there is a way not to perish but to live. So dear ones, every time you see some tragedy in life, sometimes you see a, a moral atrocity on the news. Every time you drive by some uh, horrible accident on the freeway, every time you attend a funeral, there's an opportunity you have there to think about your end. Am I right with God? Have I repented? Am I ready? Now, what is it to repent? It begins with acknowledging the truth of what God has said about you. What God has said about our lost estate. It begins with a knowledge of one's own sinfulness before the Lord. A repentant man's spiritual eyes are open to the condition of, of his soul so that he has rejected that underlying premise that had been in operation in his heart and that we see in the crowd here that says, I'm not nearly so bad off as other men. I may not be perfect, but I'm not nearly so wretched as other men. No, a repentant man acknowledges without any qualifications his desperate need. He finds himself to be numbered among those who are spiritually sick, not well. Those sinners the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to call to himself. He stops measuring himself against other men. He holds himself up to the law of God and to the holiness of God himself. And it's in this realization that the Lord begins to work humility in our hearts. We realize just how profoundly we have sinned against heaven, against God himself. 
And this brings us to a point of sorrow. We grieve over our folly. We grieve over our sin. J.C. Ryle says, The repentant man is cut to the heart as he thinks how he should have lived so madly and so wickedly. He mourns over time wasted, over talents misspent, over God dishonored, over his own soul injured. The remembrance of these things is grievous to him. The burden of these things is sometimes intolerable. That's not all, though. He confesses those things to God. He doesn't just acknowledge them. He doesn't just weep over them, but he confesses them to God. He brings that load of guilt and shame and sin to Christ. Dear ones, there are many in the world who are convicted of their sin, but they don't repent. They don't bring that load of guilt and shame to the cross that they might be delivered, that they might be set free. But the repentant man is not like this. The repentant man cannot keep quiet. He must speak about his sin to the Lord. He acknowledges his sin to the Lord and doesn't cover up his iniquity. He says, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. Psalms 32 and verse 5. And then he forsakes it. You remember the prodigal son, how he ran to his father, his father whom he knew he had so greatly offended, And yet, nevertheless, he goes to to him. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So there was a, a turning from and a turning to. That's repentance. There was a a confession of his own unworthiness, a running from a life of reckless living a breaking off of sin, but also a running to, a running to his father, the one in whom he hoped to find mercy and compassion. And what happened? What did he discover? The father said, bring quickly the best robe, the ring, the shoes for the feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That is what separates biblical, true repentance from all of our vain, fleshly attempts at turning over a new leaf on our own. This is what makes repentance different than just another self-improvement project. It's an inward turning of the heart to God. Not just merely an outward reformation, but an inward turning of the heart to God. You're setting your, 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 your sights, your, your heart on the Lord whose grace alone has the power to change you. He's the one who delights both to save and to sanctify you, to transform you from one degree of Christ's glory to another. Now, anyone who has a, even a bare sense of their unrighteousness and of the holiness of God, will at once begin to realize that the repentance our Lord is speaking of is not just a one-time event. 
but an ongoing affair. This is something that happens continually in the life of the believer. For we have an ongoing need, do we not? Of cleansing and forgiveness. We need to be continually set free from our sin. This is what Martin Luther discovered when he nailed his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg. The very first one, number one, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. A continual turning unto God. Repentance is not something that happens just once. It's an ongoing affair in the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, in what ways are you returning to the Lord? How has the Lord been convicting you of your sin, uh, even just in recent weeks? How are you turning to him? The righteous falls seven times and rises again. Let me encourage you today to set aside thinking about all of the other people that need to repent. All of the other people that this applies to and just simply consider how you are responding to sin in your own heart, to, to remaining sin. How am I responding to remaining sin? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, Jesus gives us a parable in verses 6 to 9 to help us see the urgency of the matter. Look there again with me, if you will. He told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? I trust you see the link between this and the preceding passage, something is horribly wrong. Judgment is impending upon this fig tree. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. This is one of a few parables we find in the the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ that is given without any explanation whatsoever. He simply tells the story. And so we are left to wrestle with its teaching and its application on the basis of its context, on its audience, on the, the internal connections that are made within the, the parable and so on. What do we find as we look at this? Well, first we see we have a tree. And it, this tree is set within a particular context. It's not out in a desert, it's in a vineyard. It's a fruit tree. A fig tree in this particular case. So it's, it's identified as a particular kind of tree and it's found in this kind of setting where you'd expect to see fruit born. The owner has a vineyard and he has appointed a vine dresser who has planted this tree, he's watered it, he's tended it and it is past time now that that tree should be producing fruit. He, this vine dresser we can... Um, we can hypothesize, have spent a great deal of time and energy uh, cultivating this tree, working at it. And for three years now, the owner of the vineyard has been coming to look 
for fruit. Now, according to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 23, it was forbidden to pick the fruit of the tree for the first three years while it was getting established. On the fourth year, the fruit could be picked, but you couldn't eat it. It was to be dedicated to the Lord. It was holy unto the Lord. It was only on the fifth year and following that you were free to pick of the fruit of the tree and consume it yourself. Now that would seem to indicate that this fig tree has been in this place and in this condition of barrenness for quite some time. The context here seems to suggest to us that Christ has in mind particularly professing believers. Those who are, by virtue of their profession, planted in God's vineyard. Today we would say they are part of the visible church. Outwardly, you are identified as someone belonging to Christ. You would say, I am a Christian. Jesus is my Lord. You've been baptized. And yet, we discover there's something terribly wrong. There isn't any fruit. And we don't have time to survey all of the teaching of the Old and New Testament. But in one sentence, we can summarize things and say that there's no such thing as a barren believer. There's no such thing as a barren Christian. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. And you can expect to see that newness spring forth in a manifold variety of ways. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by what? Yes, by its fruit. Jesus says in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should, be, should abide. So the Lord expects to find fruit on those who claim him, on those who claim him as their own. Are there any here today that tremble at those words? The Lord Jesus Christ expects to find fruit in our lives for his namesake, for his glory. Are there any here who profess Christ and yet are barren? Benjamin Keach says this, God is come seeking fruit. Will your bare profession, your knowledge of the principles of religion, satisfy the great God? Will the notions of truth in your head, your talking and disputing, serve you when it comes your turn? You're hearing the word, or this or that minister preach. Is that all the fruit God looks for? God will have his fruit, precious fruit, from you, It is this he comes to seek and find on your branches. If he should find none, what are his orders? God says, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? To which the vine dresser pleads for grace. Isn't that beautiful? 
in this passage. He says, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. You have a tree here which isn't bringing forth fruit. It is not producing the one thing it has been designed to do. But the vine dresser intercedes saying, Lord, give it another year, if you will. Well, beloved, that is what I'm seeking to do today with God's help, to come and to dig and to put spiritual fertilizer on you, the word of truth, praying that with the Spirit's help, you will take up those nutrients and bear much fruit and so prove to be Christ's disciples. Then the parable concludes, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Jesus leaves us on this keynote. There is still time to repent, but not much. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would take this word and apply it to our hearts. Search us, O God. Know our hearts. Lord, would you come and see if there be any wicked way in us. Lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, we know that you have commanded all people everywhere to repent, that you have fixed a day on which you will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom you've appointed. You've given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. It is with this in view that we ask you would work in us a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Forgive us, O Lord, for our prideful, arrogant hearts. Forgive us for thinking we deserve your favor when we are wretched, pitiful sinners. We come to you as needy beggars, simply with the empty hands of faith this day. God, I pray that you would transform our hearts to the praise of your glorious grace. Grant to us much fruit. Lord, that kind of fruit that can only be wrought by abiding in the vine, abiding in your word, I pray that our lives, that the fellowship of this church would be marked by love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, we desire to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work. I pray that you would be pleased to bring this about and that your name would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.